Hello and welcome to an extraordinary episode of GTFO, Grow Traffic Figures It Out. Dali here from Grow Traffic. Uh, I'm talking today to Hal Evans, who I've known for probably 35 years, maybe, give or take. <laughs> Hal's been writing a book uh, called, or has written and published a book, should I say, called Managers Managing Magic, very alliterative, and there's quite a bit of alliteration throughout the book. I must confess that I... I bought the book and I had every intention of, of reading it start to, to finish. I sat down with it with a bottle of wine. I think it was last Friday night and quite a way through it. But when Hal said he was going back to, to work, because you've damaged your leg, haven't you? I broke my leg, so I've been off for seven weeks. Yeah, if, if I sound like I'm horizontal, it's because I am. I apologise. Yeah. But but yeah. when when you said that you were going back to work, I think next week, I thought, you know, seize the day, get a uh, quick podcast done. How far how far through the book are you then? Well, this is the thing. So actually, I got quite a way through the book. And then because you were going back to work, I thought, I better try and finish it. Realised today that I was never going to finish it if I carried on trying to read it. So I downloaded the audio book, which ah. I think I enjoyed more, to be honest. God. I, I, I really liked the book. I, I thought the book was great. And... Having known you for a long time, I mean, we've not spoken properly in many years. Mm. However, I could kind of get a sense of your tone of voice coming through. I could, I could almost hear you, you know, narrating it to me as I was reading it. But hearing you read it in the audiobook was even better because you got the the ad libs, you got the voices, the impressions. Oh, I do. Yeah, I go a bit insane at points. Do you want to tell us who you are and uh, what the background is? It's a long complicated background but essentially I was a theatre director I became a radio manager and a radio presenter I'm also now an ideas and innovation and enterprise advisor and I've done lots and lots of things in between I run a rabbit hotel in my garden with my wife and set up a few companies and I've basically done lots and lots of creative things and there came a point where a senior boss of place that I work asked how do we become more creative as an organization and the, the question was really weird to be asked because I'd always worked in what I class as hyper creative environments where you turn up and the job is to create something by the end of the day and deliver it and for many people that isn't the case in more traditional industries it's um, more about doing the same thing every day or at least following the same systems and and the idea that creativity is something that is separate from us something that we can that, that we can sort of purchase in almost is a it's such a strange concept that when I was asked that question it set my mind alive it was almost like realizing that you'd been a sportsman your whole life and just presumed that everybody else was good at sports and then somebody saying to you so how do we become more sporty? It, it suddenly gave me this perspective uh, or this awareness that I perhaps had, I don't know about everything, but I have a unique perspective on that stuff. And in order to answer the question, I wrote a book and then worked for a few months writing it and sitting it down. I'm really interested in, in the book from the perspective of a marketer. I've been a marketer for the best part of 20 years, I suppose. You're also and, a manager. You're, you're the boss. You, know, you are a manager. Well, well. Funnily enough, funnily enough, I, I've, I've always been a terrible manager and I, I freely admit that I'm not even that good a leader, to be completely honest. So quite often <laughs> reading your book, it gave me loads of ideas and maybe I could improve some of that. But I, I well, like to well, well, that well, well, just just on that one, one thing, because in writing the book, I spoke to lots and lots of managers and people who are managers of different kinds in different organisations. And one thing that was almost strikingly true was that the 
type of person who said something like that, either it was a listen, I'm not very good at creativity or I'm not a good manager or whatever. Almost always the opposite is true, that it's that um, awareness that they don't know everything that makes them a really good manager. And that, and that a lot of the pitfalls of being a manager come from the idea that your brain has to know everything that is handed down to everybody else. And it's 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 a hangover from the Industrial Revolution, the idea that the workers do as they're told. And it's the quickest route to failure in a way. I mean, literally, if you imagine a if you imagine a pyramid diagram made up of brains with one brain at the top and 50 brains at the bottom of the pyramid, the idea that the one brain at the top can say, my brain is more valuable than all of these other ones put together is mathematically stupid, right? It's it's a it's a ridiculous thing, but that's the pressure that a lot of managers feel like they're under and, and put themselves under. Whereas often the best managers are the ones who go, I have all these brains, all this engine power beneath me. I don't need to do anything. I need to listen and allow space and, you know, allow encouragement, allow people to figure things out for themselves because they see more than I do. And so, yeah, what often comes with that is someone in that top brain who says, oh, I'm not very good at it. But, you know, I did, I did another podcast in my broken leg where I was a guest and I talked very generally about creativity and the book. One thing that I kind of wish I'd done was just drilled down more into the, with the individuals there. So I'd like to ask you, let's do some therapy. I mean, I'd like to ask you what's your, give me an example of where you think you have been a bad manager or how you, how you come to that conclusion, how you've come to that conclusion. So first of all, I, I knew getting you on that you'd end up interviewing me i just knew that <laughs> and that's good because you're the pro you're the so this is what i want to do for people what what i really <laughs> want to do like i genuinely didn't write the book thinking i'm going to make any money out of the book i wrote the book genuinely thinking maybe this can help because i see people struggling with this everywhere and so my you know if i could choose any anything to spend my time on it would be having a conversation with people like you which might be slight exposing or slightly exposing or personal but that might help one of one of my favorite topics is me believe it or not <laughs> i can quite happily talk about myself for hours on and you'll get both so what is my problem i'm a fragile narcissist fundamentally <laughs> so i'm, yeah, I'm probably yeah. the exception that proves the rule i um you know ego orientated I like to promote myself. I like to put myself in a certain position. I also don't really believe half of the things I spout about myself. Don't kind of trust it all or whatever, however you want. So I think a lot of that kind of ties into the way that I react to other people. I like to nudge people in the direction that I'd like them to go. And then I have that kind of pullback moment where I think, God, they're going too much. They're doing too much. I should be involved in this. Why am I not? kind of leading or driving this and I, I have that that kind of that moment and then I jump in I get involved I get argumentative I sit on things I fester on things yeah and I cause problems yeah I mean yeah and and you might not be you might you might be doing the opposite of that you we don't know but certainly to talk more generally I mean I was talking to quite a senior it's uh, a very quite successful sort of CEO type guy this morning having a coffee and we were talking about this and so much stuff to talk about narcissism it's difficult because the, I was going to say most things do return to the word I uh, with managers so for example a manager 
said to me at some point, you know, I came up with this really good scheme that meant that I was asking my staff to go out and I gave them an unlimited budget or I gave them a certain amount of money, a good amount of money. And I said, do whatever you want with this money. Right. But with some parameters and they didn't do it. Some of them did and some of them did absolutely nothing and couldn't see anything. So I went out with them and I said, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And 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 it seemed like, how, how can you get anywhere in that situation? But my point to them was, whilst that feels like what you're doing is handing out a very open brief, it's still your open brief. It, it isn't something that somebody hasn't come to you with an idea and said, I want to do this. Can I have money? You've said, I want you to find things to ask me for. Now, the difference there is about motivation. The difference is about the difference between somebody saying to you, you need to clean the house and you deciding to clean the house. In those two examples, it's far more likely that you will clean the house when you've decided to do it yourself and far more likely that you'll procrastinate, feel miserable, feel like you're just living up to someone else's standards if someone's ordered you to do it, right? So when, so so in you've sort of crossed the, you, you've, you've straddled, both spheres in that in that you've gone I've tried to encourage people to do something and then when they start doing it I want to get involved which is okay if you're able to go and sit in a passenger seat as a boss but that is supremely difficult because if no matter how nice you are as a boss a boss has the power to p45 so the boss has the power to sack you so as long as a boss is sat in your passenger seat it is going to have an effect on your ability to think creatively, clearly, and freely, because you're gonna be you're gonna be double checking what you're doing. It's still gonna go through this filter. And it sounds to me like when you say, you know, I feel like I should then get involved, it feels like what you're saying is, oh, I, I almost feel guilty. I, I should be helping them to do this. Or yeah, is it jealousy? Is it? <laughs> Sometimes I think that I, I I just want to be involved in everything. And also just to kind of clarify how grow traffic works you know I, I built grow traffic originally back in 2009 and then 2014 my wife came on and, and we both kind of freelanced and ran the business in that capacity and then in 2017 once it got to a certain point Rachel was was fed up Hannah my sister-in-law was who was like the commercial manager of a tech company was being made redundant so we invited her along, she became a director. We had our kind of second founding at that point. So although, you know, the business's general kind of concept is mine, we're family and we're very equal in the way that we kind of contribute towards the business and make those decisions. And, and that's also that's also an interesting kind of relationship and, and, and the way that the, the kind of families interact with each other. You can talk to each other in ways that you wouldn't do with other staff. And, yeah, and, 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 and some of the best teams are... are... You know, I've always worked, you know, my radio career was with Jamie, who you also yep. knew. Um, working with someone who is very similar to a brother is very different from working with somebody you've been introduced to or you've been put together with. Absolutely. Um, and they, those things can lead to, you know, the, the biggest blazing rows ever. But also it can lead to a candor that's that's useful. Um, and, Absolutely. And, and the three of us... You know, when we have our kind of directors meetings away from even the senior management team, we'll say things to each other that, you know, we'll, we'll talk in ways that we couldn't talk with the rest of the team. Like you say, there's just that level of candour because we've known each other for so long, because we are 
related, you know, family and all the rest of it. But it can also lead to those heated arguments and the feelings of, you know, competitiveness, how that all plays into it. And, and each of you kind of finding your place within within a business. And um... But there's a level, there's a level of comfort and there's a level of security that comes with working with family. And that's, uh, interestingly, that's kind of what the book is sort of about in the, 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 the I mean, the, the rough idea of the book is that what, what if you were to lift the lid off Steven Spielberg's head and apply his way of thinking to a more traditional business and a non hyper creative business, right? I'm not calling myself Steven Spielberg, but I've certainly like in radio and theater and film and stuff, you work very honestly, closely, close quarters. It's very family like. So it is a very similar thing. And so you're probably by nature quite creative organization in that sense and so you're kind of halfway there anyway well yeah we i mean we 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 are a creative organization but but reading your book it certainly kind of made me think about things we are creative and we almost we expect creativity from our our employees and and obviously we'll help them to be more creative when they come to us but it made me think whether we need to kind of formalize that a little bit so we have team meetings every couple of weeks and we do talk about ideas but that's a principle you know that's a really good opportunity for us you know you but you talk about enabling creativity you talk about focusing on the thing that people can be creative about and also kind of putting a framework in place to help people creative whether that's just telling them to go and search google yeah there's there's some some interesting what it what it comes down to let's just say let's propose that we are all massively prejudiced against the word creativity that we've marginalized creativity and like with a lot of things that are prejudice we marginalize them and we hold them up to great regard so for example if you think about 1980 movies if you think of one of the worst types of prejudice racism racism existed and still exists obviously hugely well i'm about to say racism doesn't exist anymore no in the 80s black and ethnic minority representation in films was non-existent but eddie murphy was one of the most highly paid film stars in the world and if you use that as a little microcosmic example what we do there is um as an industry of film the people who were employed who were uh, the, the white people would would take all the main characters and the guy playing the chauffeur or the waiter service role would be anybody who was not white right so you have this weird gap you have this massive gap between okay the vast majority of what we've done with that prejudice is we've held it in low regard and we've also held it up and made it the uh, we've held it up on a massive pedestal and we've got eddie murphy and prior at, at the top right and that happens with lots of things that we consider separate from ourselves that we have an inbuilt prejudice towards and with creativity that is what we've done what we've done is we've said most most people I talk to say the words I'm not creative. They say I'm not creative. And it's the biggest load of nonsense that I've ever heard in my life. Everybody's creative. Everyone can pick a color to paint their wall. We are creative. It is as natural to us as breathing. We do it every day, every five minutes, we make a creative decision. And if someone was to say to you, I'm not a breather, you would think that that was insane. But that's where we've got to. We, especially business, even started to label people creatives. Are we going to buy people in? We're going to pay, we're going to find a creative and pay them for £12.50 worth of creativity. So we hold up celebrities, we hold up actors, we hold up these heroes of creativity, whilst at the same time marginalizing it from ourselves and saying it's not 
but that's not us. So we've belittled it. And that's that's the, the conceit of the book is to say, why do we think like that? Why have we been programmed to do that with creativity, to say that about ourselves and to think that creativity is something we have to buy in? Why do we do that? And I see simultaneously that the people who come into businesses to do kind of talks and stuff tend to be sports people who are fine and great but they also are what i would class as highly creative people and doing very similar things but if you were to suggest bringing in a clown to come and talk about how to improve your business you might think it's it's a hilarious ridiculous idea anyway um the point being that this stuff isn't separate but the book spends a fair bit of time saying look this is why you really do think like that and the solutions are not complicated the fundamental problem that's going on is that when you have those team meetings once every two weeks, if someone poses an idea, let's say somebody, let's come up with a terrible idea, right? Let's say I, I once asked a bunch and I said, give me an idea, any idea. And after five minutes of tumbleweed, a guy called Jack said, solar paneled car is what he said, solar paneled car. And I said, right, let's pretend that Jack at tea tonight says that he wants to create a solar paneled car to his parents. What is going to happen at that point? And everyone said, uh, dad would say, become a lawyer. <laughs> or the dad would say, it's already yeah. been done. Go on Google. You'll find out that Tesla is too expensive. Jack's no way got the millions that that's going to need. And um, we'd come up with 15 reasons not to do that. And in meetings, there's a different thing going on at work. You, Simon, are, feel like you are providing a service to that staff member that you are paid to give a judgment at that moment. So someone goes, why don't we do a podcast about and you are likely to say something like either. Oh, yeah. Why don't you do it like this? Or, no, we've tried that before and it probably won't work. I've seen that somewhere else. But either way, you say something in judgment, positive or negative, at which point the idea is taken away from that person. It becomes a group idea. It becomes a consensus. It becomes a discussion. It has become something that if they do go away and work on it, if it's been a positive response from you, they'll probably be taking it away and working on it in your image in some way. So let's go back to Jack. If alternatively his parents were to go, cool, if that was their answer, and that's it, that's all that was said around the table, cool. Jack goes to the garage, he covers his really crappy car that he's got that he's just learned to drive in. He covers it with tin foil because that's all his budget has got. He covers it with tin foil and it looks like a solar panel car. That's his interpretation. And he begins to drive to college in it every day. And people laugh at him, but also people talk to him. The girl on the street that he fancies starts to talk to him he becomes known as the kid in the village local newspaper write a story about the kid with the tinfoil car local car garage gets to know that about this kid and says listen i will swap you a really good new car or second hand new car type thing for your solar paneled car because i want to put it at the front of my lot because it's become a bit of a local legend in the two scenarios what has jack gained or lost by doing something that would be conceived as a failure in the first scenario he's done nothing and gained nothing in the second scenario, he's gained loads of stuff, even if what he hasn't done is create the new Tesla. And that's almost always how all ideas work. That point at conception, there is nobody in the world who can give an accurate, 
prescription at that point for whether an idea will work or not. They're like newborn babies. They have just dropped out of the womb. And what we tend to do is load it with judgment really early on. Um, And what you do is you kill the chance for it to find that new route, to find another form, to fail, adapt iterate and become something else and all of the problem comes back to really a manager listening to a suggestion and giving an opinion and my point is there isn't there is there is a place for opinion but that place and that judgment is further down the line it's in a few weeks when they've gone away and they've worked on it and they've come to you with a business case and they've gone for this to work we're going to need 10 grand at that point it's the time to talk about presentations or business cases or you know prove it to me you know i i am not saying that everybody should just be floating around in the wind um spending money but what i am saying is people often will be far too afraid for lots of reasons ranging from compliance oh you can't do that because we won't be able to because of safeguarding or or whatever most of it is just to do with fiction and and what ifs you know i think it's a really valuable point and and you're absolutely right it's far too easy to make a flippant comment almost and accidentally shoot down an idea before it's even fledged in a past role we implemented something that we call pirate time which was every every desk had a little flagpole on it with a little pirate flag on it and you if you lifted your flag your flag up and then, then it meant that you were on pirate time and you were exploring and you were doing whatever you wanted, really, being creative, trying to do a bit different, different than your normal kind of working, working day. And that that was trying to encourage that innovation mindset, that, that creativity. Be more pirate. What about be more penguin? That's part of your book, isn't it? <laughs> Something like that. I did spend three months as a penguin once but you'll have to read the book to figure that one out um <laughs> and and how did the pirate thing go how long did that last are you, are you talking past tense about it yeah so so it lasted for a while um the problem was that in that business pirate time was really well aligned to the roles of the developers uh, within the business there's probably about 50 developers in that in that organization and a few really interesting and creative nuggets came out of that uh, some of them made their way into the product some of them were used on i don't know exhibition stands and you know various various little things the problem was that everybody in the business including the 20 sales people the account managers and service people all had pirate time and it wasn't well aligned with their roles within the business and have you thought about that how some people's roles might not be so well aligned to, to kind of creative output. Pirate time perhaps doesn't focus them in the right way. I don't know. Let you, me give you an example. I think, let me give you an example, see if this is what you mean. Let's say you've got an accountant um, and they're, they're really good with numbers. They're very good at showing up every day and doing the spreadsheet that needs to be done, right? Um, is that an example of what you're thinking about? That, that kind of role wouldn't necessarily need, you don't need lots of new invention. Their job is compliant. Yeah, uh, yeah, and com- compliance is, uh, is is an issue you raise, isn't it? And maybe that's that's part of it. If you think about a salesperson, for example, who is on the phone day in day out, and their job is is essentially to pick up the phone, make outbound calls, and to think about ways to overcome the objection that the person on the other end of the call might have in order to get them over the line to sell a product. With the concept of pirate time, was if you put your flag up, then you're on pirate time. Say that was half an hour or whatever it was, which mm-hmm. took them away from their primary role of generating sales. and Getting the job hard, done. Then it would be hard to quantify whether they 
had done anything that would actually impact the sales process? Well, I, I really like this question because what I'm finding when people read the book is that they're often people I know at the moment because I've not promoted the book at all and they'll ring me and I can tell that um, almost everyone has this reaction that's like, I really get the book, I really, it's really great, but it wouldn't work for me because X, Y, and Z. And quite often it's something like this, which is kind of, I work in a very compliance heavy uh, role and we can't just chuck that out of the window to go and work on new stuff. And my answer is very much, you can't, if you're a teacher, you can't ignore safeguarding. I'm not, I'm not going to suggest that, that, that you, you, you can't throw away things and you can't avoid in any job, you can't avoid everything you don't like doing. So innovating to just not do your job anymore is, is not, is not great. <laughs> However, I can't in the world where somebody would say my job is perfect. And so with, with that salesperson or with somebody who, if someone's job is to, let's say, let's take what you said to the extreme, which might be somebody who works in a call center. They've got to do a certain number of hours uh, phone bashing. Now, if they have to get 200 calls done in a day, and that's very difficult, and you say, I'm allowing you to put your pirate flag up, that doesn't work unless you also say, but you only have to get 150 calls on the day that you put your pirate flag up for an hour. So there's that. There's there's common sense which says we have to allow, a, there has to be a cost in there that goes long term. You coming up with ideas by putting your flag up will save us more money than I lose by you doing 10 less sales calls every Monday. And it will. It absolutely will. Because uh, And then it's how you pitch pirate time. To, so with more operational stuff, which is what we're kind of talking about. The question might not be, oh, think of innovation, because most people will consider that as being, how do I generate new to do? I'm busy enough. I am busy enough. I don't have time to be doing new stuff. If they want me to do new stuff, they can double my salary. If you instead pitch to those people, if if I said that this time next, you can have either the same salary or more salary, but you can leave two hours early every day. But you've got to achieve the same results. What would you attack first? What's the most annoying, time-consuming shit about your job, right? What system slows you down? What's the most common thing if, if there's dealing with complaints or something and there's one particular type of complaint that comes in, it uses up loads of time and there's no other outcome that you can give them other than what you have to say every time. Are there better ways of dealing with those? Are there better ways of triaging them? Are we using the wrong system? Can we cut out two hours of your time so that you can go to the pub and you can still achieve the same outcomes? And most people, if you give them that kind of vision of change, if you give them a vision of change that goes, you know, this isn't about you innovating yourself out of a job. This is about you enjoying yourself more. What can we do? What can you spend time on that will mean that you spend less time on stuff you hate doing? There's almost always an answer to that. And, and sometimes that's some harsh realities for people further up. Sometimes, you know, the really expensive system that you've paid for that they use is not fit for purpose. And if you really want positive change, you're going to have to spend some money and change that system. It might be that they get a hard no as a result of that because we can't spend them. We need this is the best system we've got, the best one out there. We can't do it. But it might be something as simple as... Um, um, I the coffee machine is awful in, in the kitchen. It takes me 10 minutes standing there waiting for this thing and it tastes like mud. If we could spend 200 quid on this really nice percolator and just have a coffee thing there every day, you, you might increase happiness in your workforce by 25% by one little idea like that. You know, I think most businesses can relate to a couple of those things. I mean, for one thing from our business, we, we probably had really slow laps at some point and we took them to the IT we work with and they put new hard drives in made them faster and all the rest of it. And that genuinely 
improve the quality of people's work uh, and mm. improve the enjoyment of people's work because they weren't constantly fighting against their computer to get things out. But you told an interesting story in your book uh, talking about somebody who came up with some ideas. I think the, the management team were part of the Japanese group. Was this right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want yeah. to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so a friend of mine many years ago worked on a production line as a part-time job um, and it was, yeah, a typical Japanese production line, really, but it was in, like, Cardiff or whatever. And so you stand there on the conveyor belt and you put your screw on the thing and it moves on. You do your little bit and you do it over and over again. Because he's a very creative person and a little bit of a rock and roll kid, pretty soon he got bored and he said, oh, do you want to swap with somebody else? And by day three, they were all swapping jobs since a day and changed the part. And the manager came down and saw this and the Japanese bosses came down and through a translator, they said, Did you, what are you doing? What are you doing? You can't do this. And he said, well, ah, yeah, but, you know, it's really boring. And they said, yes, but every time you change, it causes a lag in production and that harms the bottom line. And we've got to get all of these, we've got to get 2,000 units made in a fortnight, whatever it was. And he said, ah, yes, it might cause a lag, but because we're enjoying ourselves so much, because we're enjoying ourselves more, we actually make up for that lag and more so. And I'm sure we can do it. And they discussed it amongst themselves and they came up with a deal and they said, all right, we'll let you carry on doing this. But if you've not finished the 2,000 units in two weeks, you all have to work overtime for free. And they said, yeah, deal. They ended up finishing the 2,000 units two days early and they sat in the pub paid for two days at the end of it. And that is what it comes out. I think when we talk about creativity and innovation and well-being and all of these modern new words, the, the cynical voice in the business person's head says, this is fluffy nonsense. This is a waste of time. I am on a mission for people to take creativity seriously because I, I've never been one for fluff. I've never been one for that stuff. It makes sense on the spreadsheet. When you change those hard drives, you don't know because there's no parallel universe, but in the parallel universe where you didn't change those hard drives, it cost you far more in staff retention. People left because they were miserable because they're so annoyed with the hard drives. Yeah. People, their happiness, listening to people and making their job easy pays you dividend. And that's the other thing, you know, with the pandemic, I talk about this in the book, there was really two vastly different reactions to the pandemic. There was an initial thing where people working from home was terrifying organizations. It was something that would have taken 30 years for them to get to. And they taught the talk of flexing off. But what it really meant would show up at half nine if they got written consent from a manager and all this. It was rubbish. But they said it was great, like corporate report. Um, and what they found was suddenly people... They had to trust people and people were more productive and worked in different ways and, and, it, and it worked. And then there were organizations who absolutely could not let go of that control. And so I know someone who works for an organization and they were made to send an email at one minute past nine every morning to prove that they were at their desk. And if you follow the spreadsheet there, if you follow the money there and say, what are you gaining by making sure that everybody is doing something at one minute past nine? You're, you're making your workforce feel like children. You're making them resent you. You're probably getting people to create a load of fake work because they've got to put something in that email at one minute past nine. And they'll probably say, hey, can we have a meeting on Thursday at two o'clock about blah, blah, blah. And it's a nonsense thing. So there's yeah. time, there's wasted that's generated. There's a, um, isn't there a, a, a kind of somebody's law expands to fill the time to it? Yes, yes. And, and, and it does. And that's why I am, I have always been completely befuddled by working hours i just have never i remember the first job that i did that wasn't like a summer job and wasn't working in theater or whatever was working in education and i was doing something creative in education and then sort of 
day three of that job, I walked through the college at one minute past five and everyone was gone. And I'd never, that was totally alien to me. Like in everything that I'd done, you just, you're there. When the job's done, you go. And if that's one in the afternoon, then you go, oh, we've had enough, you go. And there's nobody going, oh, but we've employed you till five o'clock. What does that gain? If it's some kind of service role where you have to have people on call for your customer, that is a different thing. But there are also people who enjoy that, who who like the security nine to five doing repetitive tasks. There's a type of personality that enjoys that. So there's always those people out there. But what organizations do is as they get bigger, they get more complex and they introduce more of that stuff because they say, well, how on earth do we keep track of everyone? Well, we'll introduce checking in and checking out timesheets. And what you do, what you then find is that large organizations are the ones that then go, we can't hold on to creative people. We lose all the good people. Why is this? And it's because creative people cannot stand the idea of clocking in now. It makes them sad to the bone. It makes me sad to the bone to think that somebody is counting me. It's just awful. And, and you don't end up with a balance of personality. One of the organizations that I worked for was really progressive in some ways. And, you know, you could come in when you wanted, as long as you were in any time between kind of eight o'clock and half past 10 and you were trusted to make up your time either at the end of the day or bulk it all together and, and make it up. And, and it was very kind of laid back, but people didn't really take piss out of it, which was a big thing. And but even, that is, even that's a middle ground for me. Even that, it's like they, they should be talking about outcomes and not time. It doesn't matter. I, I, you know, when we worked in radio, when we were on the breakfast show, you know, we're in for six o'clock in the morning and you do, you know, we did a four hour show. So six till 10, we were there and we'd see everyone arrive for work at nine o'clock and sit on their desks. And a lot of people would send, spend the first couple of hours on Facebook or whatever. And I kind of, it used to baffle me. I, I was going, what's the point? Look, if Simon can achieve what he needs to do in a day for this company in 45 minutes, doesn't matter. Half eight till half 10. He can come in at four in the afternoon if he, he can come in at four in the afternoon and leave at midnight, but he could also come at four in the afternoon and leave at 6pm if he gets the amount of work. And that's the future of work is, is that contracts won't have times or good contracts won't have times written in them. They'll have expectations of either productivity or, or outcomes uh, absolutely and, and actually just going back to that example that i gave you know it was a very progressive environment and the cmo and the ceo really did believe and buy into real proper flexi time but we were a division of a much bigger group than you know, the startup beings into this, this organization. And we had to fight in order to get even that, that degree of flexibility into the contracts in the first place. I think if it was up to the leadership team of that division, then they would have been much more kind of output orientated. At Grow Traffic, we've always been a kind of work from home business because it started off as a as a freelance side hustle, you know, I was working time and then, then working on this in my, my spare times. And, and and Rachel always worked on it from home when, when she was freelancing the business. So that has been baked into our culture. We are much more output orientated. We we wouldn't have a clue if somebody's working at a certain time of day. Yeah. By, you know, by and large, we have the WhatsApp yeah. that everyone kind of communicates on. So we kind of know that people are vaguely around. And then we yeah. have our regular kind of task 
catch-ups, which I don't get too involved with, but, you know, they tell us that the work that we're allocating out is getting done or, or isn't getting done, and we can we can change that. We do those every couple of weeks. I think that we've got a good balance. So we did have an office up until March this year. We, we handed the keys in because the lease was about to renew. We became more of a nine-to-five business in some ways, and, and I found myself almost, you know, sit, sitting at my desk kind of thing. Should I go home or should I spend another couple of hours? Whereas... You know, here I can get up and go and help with the horses or, you know, yeah. work with the animals yeah. or whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's, it yeah. is interesting. And I think proximity to, to home has an impact on it. There's all kinds of oh, things. Yeah. One of the things that, I mean, when you were talking about a creativity crisis, uh, and I think this probably ties into what you said earlier about the Industrial Revolution, but you talked about how patriarchy was creativity as well. Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, I'm not an expert on on gender politics, so you know, I won't nail my flag to it. But my presumption is that because bosses, because CEOs tend to be men, and because the workforce used to be largely men, and and over a couple of hundred years has started to change, that there is a testosterone-driven thing. I mean, I'm watching the I'm watching the documentary on Netflix, and the Formula One documentary. Have you seen it? Drive yeah. to Survive. Holy yes. cow! <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Talk about a testosterone. Yeah, yeah. The language that they speak, that those bosses speak, like the fellow who's the boss of Red Bull and uh, stuff, the language they talk is just, we're looking for winners. We're looking for, uh, and and of course, yeah, fair enough, whatever. But the metaphors and the, the analogies and the, the language that's used in business tends to be quite competitive in a testosterone way. We're going to smash the competition. Donald Trump is a great example, right? So much kind of a bit over masculinized, if that's a word, over over masculine terminology. Even even in marketing, in the field of marketing, if you think about some of the, the words that we use in the terminology, we're, they're borrowed from the military. You know, we talk about campaigning. We talk about, like you say, you're smashing the competition. And even the word competition to me is, is problematic because really... No two businesses are ever the same. You all yeah. fit within a market in a slightly different way. There's always a way to collaborate with a business that does something very similar to you. I, I really kind of have a have a, a bit of an issue with the word competitor. Yeah, and uh, and of course, if you, I mean, in lots of businesses, people are pitching for the same contracts, so you want to beat the competition, right? Fine, that's part of it and that's all well and good you want to win but there's also kind of more people out there and there's there are enough customers out there for there to be more than one winner there's enough different ways to diversify to do things and and yeah and just in terms of male female thing and again talking very generally the 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 idea of the sort of shit kicker female boss that sort of rose up that in order to survive in a male orientated it's not a new, this isn't a new thing that i'm saying that in order to survive in a male orientated business world they had to be extremely hard-nosed and terrifying and be able to deal with all of the sexism and stuff thrown at them and what you're missing and i, and I don't like to draw on i don't talk about that much book i just sort of mention it but the i i don't like to draw lines on on gender too much because i think it's counterproductive i'm a hundred percent all in favor for if a man is doing the same job as a woman that man should not be paid more right i'm i'm, I'm up for all practical effort for equality however what we can also miss stuff to do with personality strengths as well that it with if you make an environment testosterone filled you miss an interest in people you start to get to this point where you kind of go in oh well 
hmm, could we be more flexible? What, what does flexible working really mean? Well, it means that people would be able to pick up their kids from school at three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And that's uh, something that has traditionally massively worked against women. So that all of this stuff around innovation, but, but the stuff around trust and agility, it, it not only does it help women, but really what it does is it includes people who care about other people rather than caring about things. Mm. And the, the male mindset tends to care more about things than people. And nurses tend to still be female because they care about the people. Mechanics still tend to be men. And that's not just about accessibility to it. It's uh, men tend to be quite up for going and sitting in the shed on their own rather than having a conversation and caring about each other, right? These are, these are things that are not nurture. They are broadly speaking, and there's plenty of women who are interested in things and not people and, and vice versa. But broadly speaking, still, you'll find men in the, in the sort of manufacturer role because that's kind of what they're drawn towards so if you allow let's forget about gender and just talk about people who who have an ability to be open and creative those people tend not to stick around in large organizations therefore the people who rise to the top of those organizations are the opposite of that and they lack the imagination to understand all this stuff so a lot of people think that that email at one minute past nine is absolutely totally necessary and that everything i'm saying is complete nonsense that that they can't trouble because that's not what they do they do they just don't think like that if it, it, with some you know companies where you guard people just can't feel like they can't change the company because the big boss is a nightmare. The chances are if you went to that boss's house, you would hate their furniture and their, their art choice and the colours of their walls. They've got poor taste and their decision as someone in charge of an organisation is with that poor taste. So it's going to be very difficult to change that organisation from within because they've just, they're the ones who've risen to the top. If you can make the case to those kinds of people in a monetary value that you go, Hey, we have proven that your business, you will have £500,000 more in three years. You don't ask people to send an email at one minute past nine right now. Or if you allow people two hours a week to work on a new idea and accept that you're going to lose two hours of paid productivity from them in the short term, you will generate a huge amount of money in the long term because of all of the creative, innovative new ideas that they generate now. If you can make the case and get them to buy into it, that's great. But, the, but yeah. that is what all of this comes down to, is by by understanding that, that what we do is crush ideas because we control, we have command and control approaches to everything. By pulling back on that and allowing space people to mess around, you will, in the long term, win. The, the average will go up, you know, the, the average, if you want to call it a successful idea. So let's say you had 10 members of staff. And you said, let's um, uh, let's allow people two hours a week to work on. So this is my challenge to you, Simon. Right? You tell people, tell all of your staff, I want you to two hours a week, pick it, put it in your diary. I want you to work on anything or nothing in those two hours. Those two hours are for you to work on something that you think will make your job easier. Now, if you can't think of anything, 
you can go to the pub for two hours. I don't want to hear from you because I don't want to hear reports. I don't want you to think that what you're coming up with, sitting there with a blank piece of paper, I don't want you to think, oh my God, what am I going to tell him that I'm working on, right? You only have to come to me if you really do think that you've come across something and you want to try it out in your direction, right? But those two hours are like, they're in the dust. You just do it, two hours. And I accept that you're going to have two hours less productivity result and that's going to cost me money and that's that, right? Let's say that you did that. And let's say there were 10 members of staff that you did that with. And let's say really pessimistically that nine of those 10 people did nothing and went to the pub. I bet that the one person who did something, what they come up with will be worth the value of all the time that you've spent. Because one idea will be great because that's like the law of throwing shit at the wall. Some will stick. And the thing that sticks long term will pay you back for what you've possibly lost. But, but what you've gained is a culture. What you've gained is that your staff believe that you believe in creative time, in innovative time, whether that's not based on success. I'm sorry, I know this is a really, really long, waffly answer. And I'm going to shut up now. But <laughs> the, 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 the point here is that, and this is something I'm really passionate about, is that if you have any kind of innovative thing, if you think that the job there is to hold up successful ideas and to say to people, this is what we want you to do. Look, Jenny here has just saved us £500,000 with an idea she worked on. Now you do it. That is terrifying. What you've put the onus on is success. And what you need to put the onus on is failure, trying, messing around, coming up with a recipe. If we just said invent a recipe now, how much do we expect that to taste good? We don't. We're just messing around, right? If the culture of the organization becomes known as one where you encourage people to mess around and start cooking, then they'll do it and it'll become ingrained and they'll do it more and more. And you will find that one in 10 or even one in 100 idea, that one recipe that flies and it's like the most successful thing that you've ever done. Yeah, and I think that it, it's a great idea, and, and I think it's something that I've learned with Pirate Time as, as well, and something that you, your book brought back to me, is it's great to give people time, but as I think you start off your book talking about the creativity crisis that we have, is a cultural thing, not just in a business book, it's broader, isn't it? And yeah. I think it's about facilitating that. That's probably part of the problem with Pirate Time that we tried to implement, is we just kind of gave people almost carte blanche to, to just try on and which which is fine but i think if there's a framework that encourages that creativity um whether it's the the 25 minute goal rule that i think you talked about in the book where Commodore you technique yeah. Yeah, yeah where you where you, you work for 25 minutes to do a specific thing uh, and just help people to to be creative because it's it's actually it's actually difficult for people to come up with a creative idea if they have told themselves for the last 20 years that they're not a creative person well it's it's difficult for creative people to come up with a creative idea i'm a, i'm arguably an incredibly creative person and if i sit down with a blank piece of paper and say write a film nothing's going to come out and that's the same for everybody and that's the other thing about creativity and that's kind of the point is everybody takes that personally and says oh i can't do it because people watch tv and or films and, and they have no idea how difficult it is to pull that off how many years it's taken to pull that off yeah. they suddenly think well why can't i write a film? it's easy uh tortoise through a town and pulls a gun on someone i mean it's just really <laughs> difficult right so yes point taken the, the what i've got in is a bunch of ideas a bunch of techniques that if if you were to give people pirate time as you put it and someone was to come to you and say i'm finding pirate time really miserable because actually it's just reminding me that i can't do anything i can't come up with any flipping chasm 
of time, depressed, thinking about crap I am. You can at that point go, all right, I'm going to give you this printout. It's got 10 techniques to just come up with an idea, right? Yes, provide them with that rather than, so you, you provide them with the technique rather than try to help them find an And that's the yeah. difference. Because as soon as you try and get help them find an idea, again, it's your idea. I've spent a lifetime doing and failing at it where, you know, be it in theatre or in business advice to people, I can get super excited by somebody's idea immediately or say, oh, you know what you should do? Um, oh, you should, you'd be, you'd be absolutely brilliant at selling um, croissants. You could do delivery uh, on a bike every morning. You like bike riding, so you should deliver croissants. Uh, and they don't do it. Why aren't they doing it? Well, it's because it's my idea. <laughs> so, so even if, and that's our first instance to kind of sit down with someone as if we're parents sitting down helping a kid do the homework, um, rather than do the homework with them and talk about the subject involved, don't talk about how to motivate yourself, talk about how to, how to mess around and, and use techniques like the Pomodoro, things like that. And there are some really good techniques and, and suggestions in the book. And I, uh, anybody that's listened to this, I would really recommend to go and have a listen to Al's book. It's uh, we'll, we'll just name name check it now. It's uh, managers managing magic, enabling creative innovation. Um, yeah, that's the full title. If you put the full, full title, title into it? Amazon, it'll come up. If you don't put the full <laughs> title in, I think Alex Ferguson always comes up one before me. I think we've really done the book kind of a, a good service there and talked about creativity. There is. Well, can I ask one you one more question just do. on that subject? So, are you saying that pirate time stopped? You don't do that anymore, and you're looking back at that and going, "I, I wish at, at that point I'd given people some suggestions." You call it a framework. I'm not keen on the word framework, but but yeah, you 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 would perhaps do something similar again with that as a backup if i have taken anything from your book and this this kind of thought process it's definitely that i'm going to try to implement some kind of innovative kind of creative process within the business the management team's fairly innovative and creative in the way that we think about things because that's that's our role to move the business forwards However, everybody can be doing that. Everybody can be getting involved. Everybody contributes a blog, for example, to the website yeah. um, almost every week. That's that's a creative thing that they're doing for the business, cool. but it's, it's perhaps not not as innovative as it could be. And we we really should be tapping into the creative staff that we've got because they are they are creative. That's why they're with us. So I'm I'm definitely going to do that. I think that pirate time didn't work for certain reasons, and one of those would be that perhaps people got to it and thought, oh, I can't, I'm just don't know what to do i don't know how to be innovative i don't know how to be creative because the last time i was creative was when you know i was 14 and it was art at high school or whatever and that, that's the last there's time a, that I'd yeah been and, and there's a th yeah there's a big problem with what managers like to do is tell people what they are doing so for example you might have used the words creativity and innovation when you described pirate time and it can and it's the biggest block it's like having your pants pulled down it's it's really difficult it's exposing and sometimes starting smaller and telling people what they've done afterwards is the way to do it so for example sitting down with someone and saying what is the thing you hate most about your job what's the most annoying thing that you have to do in your job and then follow-up question is how can you spend less time on that the answer that they give if they've got an answer is an innovative answer and and you then say that is innovation that's what you've just come up with is an innovative idea can you take that away and try just try and make that work come yeah. up with a little test for yourself if it's that you don't do it for a week just don't do it 
and see what happens. Because it might be that by not doing this thing that you hate doing, it might be that we lose a ton of business or it might be that we don't lose anything. And it might be, do you know what I mean? If there's a safe way of trying something out, go and do it. But then afterwards saying, that's what innovation is. Simply saying, can you look at ways of enjoying yourself more? Something that I do with people is a workshop, an ideas generator workshop. And the whole basis of that is around the idea that the best problem solving or the best future innovation comes from passions so if it turns out that simon you you enjoy horses that you've mentioned you like horses what do you do in your business that's related to it's a it's a, it's a really good point i i think it's one of the few things that we do that we very rarely mention right um, so you should be using horses that's a passion of yours right if you can figure out how to use your horses in your digital marketing business whatever it is that you come up with you'll a want to spend time on b really enjoy and probably because of those two drivers it'll be really successful yeah it's a it's a, it's a really great point actually and there's so many different places that you can get that kind of inspiration and really tease out the creativity and see where you can take things like that so people are writing blogs and they're currently re-watching breaking bad if people are struggling <laughs> to come up with articles for the blog um just go just look at what you enjoy just look at the things you enjoy in life and and focus on that little micro thing i'm watching breaking bad i'm going to write a blog called why breaking bad is the best marketing for uh, uh, crystal meth um, but starting with passion starting with passion you're already interested is is a real fireworks factory of stuff and people tend to separate it from work they go oh, well i've got my i play football outside work well, why don't you play it inside work? What would happen if you played it inside work? For you, space of being, you know, we really embrace the play concept. And the only problem is, and this is something that I've experienced, the pushback that I've experienced in Grow Traffic as well, because I'm a big advocate of fun, you know, having fun yeah. in your work. But people hear the word fun and trying to kind of create a fun or playful environment, and mm -hmm. they instantaneously go to the word juvenile and, and they say it's not professional i don't think that juvenile and professional are actually antonyms in any way but and and those two things are are fluid and and why because we become an adult do we stop playing in the way that that we used to and, and likewise things that were at one time professional are no longer professional for example everyone sat smoking and you know have a bottle of whiskey in the drawer or whatever and it'd be, be fine great days That's, great days hey yeah, great days bring them back um but anyway uh yeah it's it professionalism what is juvenile it changes over time and there's a totally that. different mindset when someone walks into work i'm someone who doesn't particularly enjoy birthday parties and when my own birthday parties that is but anything that's organized fun is, is often hiding to disaster right especially when an organization says it. <laughs> we are going to have fun this... Welcome, everyone, to the away day. We're going to have a lot of fun this... God, I'm going to have to make myself have fun. It can bring the fear of God into people. I think, and this is my other thing about my mission is to get people to take creativity seriously. I just don't... The, the example I'd give is if you were to think of a... Think of the most serious organization you could think of. Okay, so it's a science lab researching the coronavirus vaccine. Play is vital in that environment they are trying what well, all play means is trying different things if the people who are doing it are passionate about that subject they will enjoy doing those things they are enjoying trying that stuff out so the nerds that work in vaccine research they hopefully if you've employed the right people for the job the nerds really enjoy 
looking for a vaccine. They would do it whether they were paid or not. And playing around in order to find, in, in a scientific term, playing means experimentation. And you're playing around trying to find something. Risk-taking is another phrase that I hate, but it's the same thing. It's, it's having fun. It's going, well, okay, what if you tried it like this? What if you tried not doing this for a week or doing this instead for a week? That's all playfulness is. It's going to just alter what you're doing. And I, and I think that's where the, the language, you know, that we use is quite important. I, and again, don't say it, do it. Don't, don't say to people, we're going to have fun. Take them to the pub and sit down and say, let's all go for a pint. So you go for a pint and you go, we're going to leave this pub only when we've come up with a list of 50 of the greatest marketing campaigns for movies of all times. What film posters do you remember? What film adverts do you remember? What Jaws? Oh, wow, yeah, good start. Next one. Let's go. And you leave that pub with the next 50 blog posts already written, you know, with titles in there, whatever. So whatever your thing is, rather than telling people you're going to have fun, generate itself and encourage people to move to fun. What are you doing there? I'm doing this. Do you enjoy doing that? No, well, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, this is so true. So many. And what is the point of spending so much of your life doing something joy you know that it's, it's ridiculous and that's the industrial revolution hangover that's the idea yeah. that um school taught us that once we stopped drawing pictures in primary school it was then about correct and incorrect and pleasing somebody else and getting told that you've pleased them which is daft it's nothing you can't enjoy it. i mean being a radio presenter looks like an incredibly enjoyable job and then of course hard work yeah. and be getting up at three in the morning for a couple of years horrendous but in order to do that job you have to constantly find ways of enjoying yourself and that really forces you, doing a breakfast show really forces you to do that because an audience can tell a mile away when you're faking it. So it might be that, you know, I turn up for work in the middle of winter and it's icy outside and, I, and I'm miserable and I'm ill and I've had enough and I've not been on holiday for weeks and I've not slept. I go, I need to entertain people. And so you've got to dig deep and, and I go, right, let's get a whiteboard, put it outside, pour water on it. And um, and then dance the bolero by the show on on it like we're ice right. So then the <laughs> the point of the show that day would be can we become Torval and Dean in the show, um, and that's fun for us. That's hilarious for us. So we're going to do that. Now that's in an, that's in a hyper creative so called silly environment, but it's absolutely not silly. It, um, in terms of you know if we don't get the listening figures and we we don't pay the bills and all of that, you know the stakes are high there. So whatever your audience, whatever your audience is uh, for something, if you can dig down and demand that you spend as much time as possible on things you enjoy, accepting that the Venn diagram really can cross work with pleasure. And yeah, that's the goal. I, I think there's, there's some really valuable points that we've been through there. There's something that I want to touch on. I really wanted to ask a bit more about your rabbit hotel. And just, to, just to caveat this, I... Uh, came back on Sunday from from a night out and Rachel had turned up with a rabbit we now have a rabbit first time well I've got a rabbit. oh nice you better not be keeping it in a hutch um yeah well what's a hutch a cage yeah it's a small cage it's in a small cage right that's gotta end now sorry that's gotta end <laughs> right, yeah. it's cruel animal cruelty I'm afraid Great potted history of rabbits. The hutch was invented by the French. The hutch was to keep the animal alive in the corner of the kitchen until you killed it and ate. Rabbits survive. I'm watching my two rabbits now, and they are flying around my garden faster than any cat or dog, and that's why rabbits still exist, apart from the fact that they have lots and lots of baby rabbits. They have to be able to outrun the predators, right? 
So rabbits are prey animals and they are incredible athletes. They, they need exercise. They've got incredible joints. They, they literally leap for joy. If you want to spend some fun time, just Google rabbit binky. Binky, it's called. It's when they leap for joy when they're running. And I had a rabbit as a kid and it lived in a hutch for 14 years. And I feel terrible about that now because you are caging up something that needs more exercise than a cat or a dog. And we don't keep those in case because we don't eat. So uh, they're great house pets. Just got to hide all of your wires. They are amazing house pets. They're never sick. Their poo is just recycled hay. They're vegetarians. So you have a little litter tray in the corner in a little box. So if you take the top of the cage off the top of that thing and just keep the plastic bottom, put a litter tray in there with hay and just let them have free reign of the living room. That's the next step for you after you have encased your wires because they love, there's nothing they love more than the internet to eat. I mean, the the rabbit is currently in in Leon's in my little boy's bedroom. And every time I go in there, oh, I think it's actually Rachel that's letting him out. I kind of scoop him up and put him back in because I'm, I keep thinking he's going to burn the house down. He's going to go in there, chew through some wires before you know it. <laughs> he won't burn the house down. He would just cut off the wire. <laughs> if you cut a wire, it, it just it just turns the internet off. It doesn't start a flame. Don't worry. <laughs> no, well, well, that that's where my anxiety, to be honest, I start thinking yeah. about things. Yeah, well, that's, that's absolutely, absolutely <laughs> not true. If there's a candle on the floor, then it might set the house on fire. That's, that's you, you need a flame to start with. So, <laughs> But they are amazing house pets they're not great for kids they're not great for young kids because rabbits are prey animals and they they see kids as really um threatening because their kids just want to grab them you've got yeah. to let them come to you and when they do they have the best personalities they you know i've got an old one he's, he's very close to death he's blind every night at about 11 o'clock he stumbles out of his litter tray where he spends all day and he finds his way across the living room he hits every wall in the living room and finds his way to me next to the couch where he lies down and has a stroke for like an hour every night just comes right. searching for me a beautiful animal so we we had rab when we went on holiday we would take them to the rabbit boarding place and then we we were on our honeymoon and i said to sarah who's an itv journalist so also was working in the media said what would you do if you could do anything else and she said something like run a rabbit sanctuary so we converted the garage and then we quite quickly found ourselves being booked up with commercial customers instead and um, that's grown now to like 12 chalets where people bring their, their rabbits. And that's what we do. And it pays, paid for a few more trips to Hawaii. Sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. <laughs> and if there's anyone listening who wants to do that and know how and wants to be the first franchisee of this business, get in touch quite seriously. I've thought about it for ages and uh, we can, yeah, you can do it. It's, it's a great it, it, you could i could quit my job and just do that but it wouldn't it would mean that we wouldn't be able to go on holiday that's why i don't it sounds it sounds really interesting honest i um i, th- I think one of the last times that, that we kind of interacted with each other you you were still on the radio on, on rock fm at the time mm-hmm. and something happened i think my my director at the time was listening to rock fm and emailed in to say that i said that i knew you and then you and jamie Came mm-hmm. back on and, and made some comments about rats and mouses because if you remember, <laughs> Simon used to keep a rat in his pocket. But yeah, he was such yeah, a weird yeah. kid. But <laughs> every time you'd bump into Simon in Blockbuster Video and he'd be there in his smelly wax trench coat because he always wore a big wax trench coat, a goth <laughs> kid, you know. And he'd be there and he'd introduce you to the rat he was keeping in his pocket. <laughs> well, uh, well, I still wear smelly black, uh, smelly. <laughs> 
trench coats, to be honest. Exactly. Rains is so bloody much. Yeah, but the thing the thing that I was gonna say about that, that those those weird little things that, that we do, what when you kind of scratch the surface, when you know, when you you would say to somebody, oh, I, I run a rabbit hotel or whatever, and you think, oh, you know, it's got two hutches in his, his back garden that he keeps rabbits in. And, and similar with my my kind of rats and the rat breeding, because I, I, I bred those for years, and I bred them and I sold them all across the United Kingdom. I exported them to Russia, I exported them to Canada via uh, the Netherlands. I mm. built... Um, cages for rats and sold them all over the country and it pretty much paid for me through university and Jesus. and all that time I, I i bred i had like a, a six-year breeding plan and i eventually bred this rat that people in the rat fancy community could never exist as you know impossible mm. too difficult to breed and i eventually did it so you know from from the, the kind of outside looking in you're weird isn't it oh it's, it's just a little trick. Yeah, eccentric thing. He carries a rat around with him or whatever, or he's, you know, he's a 40-year-old man who, who loves rabbits or, or, you know, whatever it, whatever it is. And, and you don't There's realize. a couple, there, there are, there's something I want to say about this. I, I say so often, I, I, that we have a belief that in order to start something, we would look at a story like that. Someone would listen to a story like that. And I, I call them in the book, I call them the lottery winners, right? What we tend to is, we listen to an interview, the famous, let's think about like Mark Marin's podcast. Right? You listen to it and they tell the story. People always say, so what advice would, and it's false. We're listening to the lottery. You can't repeat what they did. It's like asking a lottery winner. So tell us how you did it. What advice would you give to people who did it? Well, I'd choose nine, 11, 14. Um, th these aren't methods. And, and we believe, especially in business, we believe that we can plan for success that business plans will be successful and they are the biggest lying pieces of fiction that you've ever known anybody can write a business plan that says by year four and i've seen millionaires who their, their initial million was made because at the age you were holding rats they were messing they messed around with the server more and more until they had were doing it for someone else and then they were doing it for 20 people and then eventually they had a business with online servers right that's how they were successful. And even they start to believe later on, okay, they do the rhetoric and they go, oh, so now I'm going to have my seconds and they plan it to death. It doesn't work. There's something within it, even, even with all that money, there's something within it that might work, but it's not the plan that they had. There's a, there's a subsidiary thing that happens in there that, oh, we've realized that all that planning was a waste of time. It was only once we rolled stuff out, did we find out what worked and what didn't. I have yet to see if it was possible to plan to succeed, there would be the answer. The answer would be out there. You could pay for it. You could download it. And all of us would be millionaires because it's been worked out. The magic has been worked out, right? There is no business from Apple to my rabbit business or your rat business. There is no business that didn't start in some way with somebody just doing, not analyzing it and not planning it. Almost always, well, 100% of the time in my, it started with a passion for something. So again, to go back to my thing about people think it's ludicrous to say, well, you enjoy playing football. Why don't you do that at work? I think that's a crazy suggestion. That's what Simon did with rats. That's what I did with rabbits, radio presenting, theatre. It's what Tom Hanks did with acting. It's what Bill Gates did. It's what Steve Jobs did. They were passionate about tech and they, they were messing around in a garage in San Francisco. <laughs> you know, that is not just our way. It's the only way that things happen is by you doing something you are natural. You enjoy. That means you're good at it. 
if you enjoy it. So do it more. It was the kind of SEO optimization. It was part of marketing that I was just fascinated in. Uh, and that's why I started talking about it, blogging about it, talking to people about it, generating business. And it doesn't have to be perfect, does it? Just start oh on that God. journey. And There's nothing really that's perfect. perfect. It's like, I, I always say, you know, it, it um, again, this, is, this isn't an exception. This isn't a crazy theory. This is fact that in order to score a basketball, you have to shoot 99 shots before you score your first dunk, right? Well, not a dunk. Stand in the middle of the court and try and get the ball in the net. It will take 100 shots before you get one in, right? And the way that we think in research, I'll do things, I'll learn stuff, so that when I walk out on that court for the first time, I will throw a basketball straight into the net. That would be the most insane thing that you'd ever seen somebody say. And it would be hilarious to watch, to actually see somebody go out there and go, I've done all the reading, now going to be an NBA star. <laughs> like, what? That isn't how things work. Things work by what we perceive as failure is not failure. There, that isn't failure. You wouldn't say that Michael Jordan failed for years until he succeeded. No, he played basketball. Um, you're, if you were to go back and if we were to be able to watch a D-series that accurately retold your journey to rat success and we saw every day of your journey to rat success, if we watched that back, we would see now countless things that we would consider failure in retrospect. It, Simon at the time didn't see that as failure. It was like, oh, we'll talk about the rabbits. Um, so I had six hutches in the garage before I became passionate about hutch and hutch space. We filled the garage with hutches. And then I found that rabbit wee would trickle from one space to another. It was really hard to clean underneath certain things. And I learned lessons and rebuilt it in a different way, which meant the rabbits were happier, I was happier, blah, blah, blah. That's not failure to say you know, I could certainly help somebody now with lessons that I've learned from that and say, hey, here's a bunch of stuff. If you're going to build it, this is how to build it. But that's not failure. That's just what you do as you develop in life, as you do anything, as you learn to walk. You would never say to a kid, well, you're not going to learn to walk. Into Absolutely. And I find this in marketing as well, that you create a marketing plan, plan out all this stuff. But as soon as you do that first little campaign, that first thing, the marketing plan changes because <laughs> it, it doesn't yeah. perform the way you anticipate yeah. it and hopefully it'll perform better in some places worse in others and you you kind of start to tweak it and, and work around and, and then invariably you you stop doing half the stuff that you're going to do because you figure out the first bit didn't work so that's definitely going to work and, and before you know it you spent all that time planning and it's kind of pointless and thinking about marketing so just as quickly how have you been pro-marketing your book and has that been successful i am terrible for everything that i talk about you saying you're passionate about seo i couldn't be further from passionate about seo for me, that's the same as saying, um, how passionate are you about Premiership football? I'm not at all, at all. I would rather poke my own eyes out than go and sit in a pub on match day. I never, never enjoyed it. Can't stand it. It's not for me. I just oh, really, really hate it. And this is the problem. This is my problem. I am a, I, I'm that creative person that leaves large organizations. But what I need is the marketing manager who loves mar marketing stuff next to me. I have this tendency. I, I created a podcast called the last season in Nepal. And this podcast is a doctor friend of mine went halfway up Everest to treat people with altitude sickness. And I asked her to record an audio diary and she would send me stuff back from the Everest region and I would give a little 
notes or ask it, oh, can you record a bit of the yaks making noise outside or whatever? And we turned it into this podcast and it's amazing. It'll make you cry your eyes out and it'll take you away to a glacier in the middle of nowhere. It's amazing. She's amazing. Could you just repeat its, its title again? It's, it's called The Last Season in Nepal. And you'll list, the whole thing is less than an hour. Like there's seven episodes, eight episodes. And, and I spent a year, a year and a half on this, editing it, producing it, writing the music for it. And I sent two Instagram posts and left it. And that's what I do. I'm, I'm somebody who loves creating things. Luckily with the rabbit business, my wife's good at Facebook. I guess, like it works, so that's <laughs> great. But, but that's why I've always worked in teams. So with the book, I've done two, this is the second podcast. I literally sent a tweet and a Facebook message when I wrote it. And then I went, oh no, passion for doing it. It's, it's just beyond me. It's beyond me. And it's, it's awful. I mean, it's, it's, I can either sit around and beat myself up for being terrible at that thing, but, but also there, you know, I am looking for, I'm looking for someone who really knows about SEO and marketing to just give me their time for free to um, really promote the book. <laughs> we'll have a conversation about that offline. <laughs> but I think think that you are clearly an exceptional communicator. And when you can get in front of people and start telling them about your idea, that the passion that you have for that will rub off from them and, and hopefully inspire them to make changes, hopefully inspire them to go out and buy your book. And maybe yeah. that's second podcast. Brilliant. You know, where can you go next? Who, who's the people you can speak to? There's plenty of podcasts out there. Anyone listening who wants to invite me on a podcast, you know, I'm there. I'm happy. And I do love talking about it. And I do, you know, I genuinely am, whilst I, I hate selling my own wares, that's what it really comes down to. I really don't like having to buy stuff from me. I am really... I'm very, very secure about my opinions on this. And I'm willing for someone to say to me, I don't think this book would work for me because X, Y, and Z. And and p- people have done that. And I've explained to them why they're wrong. And they've gone away and done it. And it's worked. You know, I'm more than happy to be challenged on stuff in there. And to, my, my primary goal is help people take creativity seriously. And so that that helps you. Like, I genuinely wouldn't want to. I don't want to do anything in the in the world that doesn't improve things. I can't. I, I, life's too short. I just yes. you know working in entertainment. It was all about making people happy. It wasn't. You don't start those things in order to make money. <laughs> okay. Yes, the money comes if you do it for a long time and and people want you. But but yeah. So um, I'm always looking for partners. I think part of it was, is being a twin to work with people company you have different skills for me and I think I think that's a that's a common thing as well I mm. I feel exactly the same to that I, I always say to people I'm I'm very good at, at kind of starting things and putting things into those ideas into motion but I'm not a great finisher and I need yeah. kind of people around me I'm not a good manager I don't I, I don't think I'm a good leader in in, in many ways but yeah. you know I can start things off I put the ideas out and kind of gently nudge people in the right direction for whatever uh, reason well, uh, it, tends to get, it tends to go the way i think you well here's why mm-hmm. i think you're a good manager and we'll end on this right and, and your staff can send me anonymous emails right and tell me them here's why i think you're a good manager there's a chapter in the book that you won't have got to called cave and i ask people to i ask people to imagine the first group of people that ever formed right around a campfire the cave people and the question to answer, so let's say no manager had ever existed. This is the first time that people started working as a team. Maybe someone collects wood and they burn the fire. And then and the, the community grows and there's another fire that's lit every night on the other end of the village. But there's only one wood store. And we find that the wood needs to be balanced between two places. So we're going to start to need some kind of way of sharing out the wood. So you then need kind of somebody who 
could allocate it. That for me is what a manager is needed. And the question I ask people to ask themselves is if you were, if you needed a manager, if you were the first person to ever need a manager, what would you need them to do for you? Right? What are they there for? Because we think about it so top down. We think about it so industrial revolution that, well, a manager's there to um, drive the workforce and find people and, and keep them in line. Go, no, actually, the reason a manager would have existed in the first place was to do things like solve disagreements. You, you know, a team of three can, can outvote, can have a vote, right, when two people disagree or things like that. Or, the, or you would want them to support you. I would want a manager who could take a step back and tell me from a distance when I'm not landing my plane properly or whatever. So it's a service role. The point is that a manager, in theory, should be, if everything's running well, a manager should be doing nothing at all. <laughs> That's my crazy theory, is that they don't, they're not needed. People are doing the job, right? Everyone's doing their job freely, successfully, creatively, innovatively. It's all working. The manager is brought in when something is required to fix, when help is needed. Mm. Where managers tie themselves up is that they think that they should fill their time with justification. Um, but during the pandemic, I spoke to somebody else who said the man, their manager in their department now has said that they, she wants to catch up with them for an hour at the start, uh, an hour on every workday to ask them what they're doing, to talk about what they're doing. It's a huge amount of time to spend doing. Like if there's eight people in the team, you know, she's spending eight hours a day talking to them about what they're doing. And she thinks that what she's doing is being a good manager by checking up, making sure they're okay, giving them focus. She's not. She should be stepping in when somebody says, can I have some help, please? Yeah. In a perfect world, right? If you've got the right people doing the jobs, that's what you're aiming for. You've got the right people who know what they're doing, are autonomous, and they're brilliant. And when they need you, they go, oh, Simon, I am stumped. Help me out with it. Help me out. So I, I do agree with that, actually. And there's something that I, I always say that I've said to people in, in Grow Traffic, that in every role that I take on in the business, I want to make myself redundant from that role as quickly as possible. doesn't always happen, but it's a good way of looking at it. I think that's been really interesting. So the book, just to remind everyone, it's called Managers Managing Magic, Enabling Creative Innovation. And it's available on Amazon, and it's also available on all the uh, the audiobook platforms. Um, yeah, Audible, Apple, all that. So, so yeah, so it's really good. Would you mind, if you can, say, saying goodbye to the listeners in your famous Welsh pop star kind of voice? Oh, from the audiobook, because I, t- I tried to do a Tom Jones impression. Yeah. I'd like to say thank you to everybody who's listened to me waffling on with Simon so many hours. I probably bored you senseless. Uh, and uh, please uh, remember that my album with Wycliffe Jean was called You Gotta Go There to Come Back. You Gotta Go There to Come Back. Thanks for listening. <laughs> thank you very much, Al. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with FFS version of GTFO. Bye for now. Thank Thank you. you.